Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, the way that you dwell with us faithfully day by day and week by week. We thank you for um, this new day, this new week that um, we start today and the Lord's Day that you've given us. We're grateful for the opportunity to do it by gathering with one another and to receive very soon from you your means of grace and word and sacrament. Uh, Father, we pray that you would bless us now as we consider um, how to study your word and, and the insights that it gives us and pray that you would bless us as we do that. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we are beginning um, today a new uh, little section in our adult Sunday school curriculum this morning. Um, my plan is for us to spend the next three weeks um, on a topic called preterism and, 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 and just generally the topic of uh, New Testament prophecy and how we think about it, how we interpret it, how we understand it. And part of the context for this discussion is the fact that in our um, study of the Gospel of Mark in our sermon series, uh, we are coming shortly to uh, the Olivet Discourse in Mark, in Mark 13, where um, Jesus, after uh, going up, as, he, as we're reading in Mark 12 right now, on the Temple Mount and interacting in various ways in the courts of the temple with um, the, the Jewish leaders, the elders and chief priests and scribes and um, those that they utilize against him. Um, Jesus will um, uh, go down from the temple um, and his disciples will look at the buildings and they will say, uh, uh, teacher, look at these enormous and, and beautiful uh, buildings of the temple. And Jesus will say to them, I tell you, um, all of these stones will be thrown down. Um, not one stone will be left upon another. And then as they go up in the Mount of Olives, uh, the disciples are very confused by this. This is a, a strange thing uh, to say. This is the temple. This is uh, the pride of Israel. This is uh, the thing that, um, that they have worked throughout the centuries um, to build and maintain. And it was destroyed, of course, by the Babylonians, but rebuilt again uh, during the return uh, from the exile um, about uh, 500 or so years before the time of Jesus um, and um, has been uh, embellished and rebuilt even further um, and very recently by uh, Herod the Great, only about 30 years before uh, Jesus was there. And so they're very confused that Jesus would say that the temple would be destroyed and torn down. And, and they ask, when will these things be? When will this take place? And then Jesus proceeds to talk about a bunch of things. He talks about false messiahs and persecution and rumors of war and earthquakes and astronomical signs and this crazy thing called the abomination of desolation. Um, and then he says, I tell you that all of this will take place um, before this generation passes away. Um, and so the, how we interpret a text like the Olivet Discourse is really uh, a fundamental question. Um, uh, and as we'll look, you know, that there's been a lot of confusion or discussion or debate about how we interpret these things. What do we think about when Jesus talks about false messiahs and rumors of war and all these kinds of things? What is he talking about? Is he talking about something um, that is still future to us, that is still going to happen at some point in the future, or is it something that has already taken place, at least generally speaking, um, in history? And the preterist approach essentially is um, that these things are past, that this is the past history, um, that they happened all in that context of the first uh, generation of Christians after Jesus' death 
resurrection and ascension. So that's sort of what we're talking about, and it's a really important um, topic. I, I, I begin um, here in the handout, why is it important to properly understand New Testament prophecy? And that's really what we're talking about here is, is how do we understand the prophetic writings that are found in the New Testament, the prophetic writings that originate especially, um, well, they, first they originate in some ways with the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had some prophetic announcements to make, uh, but then they're really taken up and expanded upon in the ministry and teaching of Jesus himself. And then uh, I would argue that many of those same prophetic statements and writings are then taken up by the apostles and the epistles and talked about even all the way um, to uh, the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ as recorded by John. Um, usually when we think of biblical prophecy, our minds tend to go to the Old Testament, right? We think about prophecy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, all these uh, prophets in the Old Testament who, who had these visions and, and, and ideas about the future that the Lord had given them. Um, but the reality is that there's a lot of prophecy in the New Testament also. And so this is something that, that we really need to be careful and think about. Um, these predictions are really connected with the ministry of Jesus, but they're then uh, taken up by the apostles. And I think you see in books like Second Peter, in books like Romans, in books like First and Second Thessalonians, you see uh, the apostles wrestling with the words of Jesus and their application to their current context. Uh, because they understood um, at least most of Jesus' predictions um, to be something that they anticipated coming about in their own lifetime. Uh, it's important to say that Jesus did not only issue predictions about uh, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, judgment that would come. Um, I do think that is the bulk of what he predicted. But as we'll see in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus also had predictions about the end of time. Uh, John 5 is our reading this morning. In that text, Jesus um, talks about how on the last day, he himself, his own voice, will call um, the, the dead from their tombs and they will rise again. Um, so Jesus spoke about the last day, certainly, um, and so do the apostles. And the important question, I think, is for us to discern when we're coming to New Testament prophecy is, which is which? When is Jesus talking about something that will occur at the end of history? And when is Jesus talking about something that he anticipates will take place within the generation to whom he speaks, within their lifetime, something that they will see in front of them? That's a lot of um, what uh, we're going to be thinking about as we, as we try to interpret and understand various New Testament prophetic texts. Um, I think it's, 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 uh, it's fundamental to correctly um, interpret prophecy in the Bible, generally speaking, and specifically in the New Testament, since that's our sort of focus right now. Because prophecy in the Bible is not simply about um, sort of verifying the authority of God by showing that he could tell the future. Now that certainly is something that we see that's important about prophecy. We see the power and sovereignty of God, his ability to predict what is going to come to pass because he himself intends to bring it about. But Again and again in the New Testament, the point of prophecy is to engender faith and repentance in those that hear it, right? God tells the future to those whom he loves so that they will adjust their lifestyle if necessary, so that they will grow in their faith and their confidence and trust in him, so that they will even repent and put away sin if necessary. Um, a, a great example of this is in the story of Jonah um, when 
God in his love um, uh, for the people of Nineveh uh, sends Jonah um, with an announcement about judgment that is going to come. And, and Jonah shows up and he says, eventually he shows up, right? We know there's a little a, a twisted journey there, um, some twists and turns. But eventually he shows up in Nineveh and his announcement as a prophet of God is 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, the people of Nineveh understood um, intuitively. Jo- Jonah didn't tell them. He wasn't much interested, actually, in explaining this prophecy to them. Um, but they intuitively realized, well, 40 days will be destroyed. Well, what does that mean for us? What should we do in this 40 days with this warning, this prophecy of the future? Um, they decided to trust it. And the, the king of Nineveh led them all in repentance and putting on sackcloth and ashes and praying that God would have mercy. Um, and, of course, in that story, God did have mercy. He relented and did not destroy Nineveh in 40 days. But that's a great picture of the way in which prophecy is meant to function. It's meant to engender a response in those that hear it. And so when we read prophecy, it's really important for us to distinguish, okay, is this a prophecy that was already fulfilled and certainly still has implications for how we should live today? Or is this a prophecy of something that is still to come for us? Um, and that, that makes a huge ethical difference in our lives the way that we think about those things. And part of the reason that I think it's important for us to, under, to, to work on this topic of New Testament prophecy is because um, most of the modern evangelical teaching on the New Testament prophecy um, assumes what I would call a futurist, that's not my words, but generally within the, the, the community of, of people who talk about these things, uh, a futurist position. Um, that means that I think it's fair to say that much of the work that evangelicals do in the New Testament assumes that the bulk of, and I don't mean scholarly necessarily, more mean just kind of on a popular level, uh, the bulk of prophecy that we read in the New Testament, well, that must be something that is still to come. That must be something that we're still looking for to happen. And even maybe we should read the newspaper with an eye towards seeing if it's happening in our day and age, right? Every time there's something that happens in the Middle East. This is something that you see. Um, Christians can be tempted to think, well, does this mean that what Jesus was talking about um, on the Mount of Olives, is that that what's coming to pass now? Is this recent dust-up between Iran and the United States connected to war and rumor of war that Jesus spoke about? Um, Those kinds of questions come into our minds. And so I think it's really um, important for us to properly understand these things so that we read the times rightly, um, and so that we don't get caught up in this, uh, what I believe to often be a distracting focus on predicting particulars about the quote-unquote end times and when they are and and what's happening and what's next, um, or even how to somehow bring them about in some way in time and space. So that that just kind of lays you a a framework for the, 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 the... the way that we're going to approach this topic. Before I begin to jump into more details, and today I really mean to be an introduction to this whole topic, this idea of preterism, and then uh, the next several weeks we'll look at some specific texts in more detail. Any initial questions or comments or, or thoughts about this topic, though, as we jump into this? Well, let's, let's just talk a little bit. Um, preterism. Um, what is preterism? As I mentioned a little earlier, preterism, it comes from the Latin word preter. Uh, it just means past. 
And essentially, preterism argues that much, but not all of the prophecy of the New Testament has to do with events that have already taken place in human history, especially the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Um, if you, you know, the, the timeline of Jesus's life um, is around 30 AD, or rather his death and resurrection. And so 40 years later, um, we see this cataclysmic event that happens in Israel, that is the destruction of Jerusalem, the tearing down of the temple, the burning of the temple, uh, Gentiles coming in and carrying off uh, the objects of the temple as spoil. And, and preterism argues that much of the prophecy that's given in the New Testament was oriented toward that event. Not all of it, certainly not all of it, but much of it was oriented towards that, predicting that event because it was such a central event um, for the people of God. Now, I want to say here that there is a danger when you get into these topics. There are dangers all over the place. I think one of the dangers is, you know, what we see sometimes in what I've just mentioned, this sort of obsession with predicting the end times and, and all these kinds of things. I think that's one distraction, certainly spiritually. There's also a heretical danger, though, that I think is important to name and talk about. And that's what I would describe, what is often described as hyperpreterism. Hyperpreterism is the, and you may never have heard of this, and that's great if you haven't. Um, uh, Hyperpreterism is the idea that all of the prophecy in the New Testament was fulfilled in 70 AD, including uh, the, the physical second coming of Jesus Christ, including the resurrection of the dead, uh, the, of the body from the grave, um, the last judgment. All of those things are past, and we sort of now live in some post-resurrection reality. Um, I, when, you, when, you, when you hear it put like that, it doesn't hold up logically, I think, because we look around at our lives and we say, right, is it, if this is the, the new creation, um, there's something wrong, right? Because people are dying and wickedness is still uh, rampant and there are still all these problems. Um, but I'm just letting you know about this because it is a danger that, or it is a trap that people fall into sometimes when they begin to take this hermeneutic principle of really looking to see how New Testament prophecy is fulfilled in 70 AD, and then they just go all the way with it and say, okay, well, that means 1 Corinthians 15, uh, was, which talks about the resurrection of the dead, was fulfilled. Um, that means that everything that, new, that, that Revelation talks about was already fulfilled in 70 AD in a, in a, in a complete way. And I just want to warn you against that. Um, the reason that I'm warning you um, to not even go there, basically, is because that is a position that is outside of historic Orthodox Christianity, right? Uh, we um, uh, use regularly here in our worship um, the Nicene Creed, of course, which is, um, uh, has been for uh, you know, um, almost two millennia now the fundamental statement of Christian belief and orthodoxy. And the Nicene Creed talks about um, Jesus' return, but how does it talk about it? It talks about it as a future event, right? From whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Uh, it talks about the resurrection of the dead, um, but it talks about that as a future event. I look for the resurrection of the dead, right? The life of the world to come. I look for it, I'm watching for it because it hasn't happened yet, because it's still future to us. And so if you embrace 
a hyper-preterist position that says all of this has already taken place, um, then you are deviating from historic Orthodox Christianity, and you don't want to do that. The creeds are there for a reason. They're, they're there to, to guard us and keep us um, in the teachings of Scripture, um, faithful um, to the Word of God in that way. Any questions about that? I know some people may have had, had interactions with this view. Yes, sir. Billy. That, and that's what ends up happening, yeah, with hyperpreterism is because you have to somehow explain the fact that the resurrection of the body is past. Um, what happens to us then when we die if the general resurrection has already happened? Yeah, and so uh, inevitably resurrection uh, that would be promised for you or me as those who live post-70 AD becomes spiritualized in some way. It's, it can't be physical in the way that the scriptures speak of it. And yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of the heresy as well, I would say, is the, is the way it becomes very Gnostic very quickly in the way that it rejects the physicality of the resurrection of the body that were promised in the scriptures. And not just promised, it should be said, to the righteous, but, but to everyone. Um, the, the scriptures clearly teach the, resurrection, the bodily resurrection of all men on the last day and their judgment by the Lord Christ. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, that it ha- yes, that it happened physically. Yeah, that he literally um, fully came as much as he's ever going to come um, in 70 AD, that that was. Now we could talk about, and we will talk about, there is a sense in which Jesus did come in 70 AD. He came in judgment um, to do what he predicted and prophesied would happen um, to Israel and their apostasy. Um, but yeah, the, the hyper-preterist position would say Jesus came literally, fully, there's no second coming that we're still waiting for. Um, and it becomes difficult to, I think, square that with the teaching of Scripture about how Jesus, um, when he comes, everyone will know, everyone will be aware, um, and he will judge all men, those kinds of things. I think the logic is that, well, I don't know if I can tell you exactly the logic. Um, Somehow he's back in heaven. I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure I could totally explain all the way in which this view tries to work. It's, I think there are a lot of contradictions within it. Yes, sir. Right, write it down. You'd think the, yeah, that would be, <laughs> yes. No, I agree. I think, yeah, that, that's another of these contradictions that exist. The main thing I'm bringing up hyperpreterism is just so that you will avoid it. Um, <laughs> don't, don't go home and Google hyperpreterism and spend three hours on discussion boards arguing with hyperpreterists. That would not be what I'm advising you to do. Um, it, because it really is, a, I think, a really unfortunate view in that it, 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 there's a genuine desire to understand the scriptures. And, and, and I think uh, taking a hermeneutical principle that is good, but then just sort of trying to apply it in a really brash way um, around... Um, this and and use it everywhere in the same way and with hyperpreterism as there always is in heresy 
there's this, you have this community that gets, or, that gets centered around the idea that they finally got it right, right? You see this with every kind of heresy, um, that for thousands of years the church really misunderstood everything and finally gnosis, knowledge, secret knowledge has come to them and they, they see it and, and everyone else is blind. And so that's why it's very difficult to argue with anyone who has given themselves over to a particular form of false teaching. And you see this with hyperpreterists, that there's this idea that, well, you can't possibly understand or, or interact with them because you, you don't have the, the goggles, the glasses that will give you the true wisdom and insight. And so, you know, you, you have these fundamental differences of uh, where you're starting, which makes it very hard to communicate in a way that is helpful to anyone, really. Um, so, but that doesn't mean the Spirit of God can't work and bring people back to truth, but I think it's not usually going to be through argumentation. Was there another hand up somewhere? Oh, Tama. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I'm sure there's a spectrum there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I want you to hear me say, as I'm talking about preterism, that I would describe myself as a, as a partial preterist in the sense that I don't believe that everything talked about in the New Testament, um, I don't believe that the most fundamental things talked about in the New Testament as future prophecy have come to pass, right? We still look for the resurrection of the dead. We still look for the second coming of the Lord Jesus and the last day and the judgment of all men. So hear that clearly. Okay, so I want to jump now into, um, turn the page to the back and talk about, before we talk about what happened in Jerusalem, what this actual event was, I want to talk about some of the fundamental assumptions of the preterist approach, um, which is the approach, or partial, let me ask, I use that word preterist just generally to mean um, the place where I am, but really if you pin me down, it's partial preterist would be a more, precise way. So the preterist, partial preterist, the idea that much of the New Testament prophecy is past uh, in terms of its fulfillment. Some of the fundamental assumptions. The first is that the New Testament canon as a whole was completed before AD 70. Um, that's something that I absolutely believe um, and think that, um, yeah, I just, I, that's where I am. And I know that that's not where the place where all conservative PCA faithful pastors are, um, but that's absolutely where I am, that I think it is almost certain that the entire canon of the New Testament was completed before um, 70 AD. And the practical argument for this, and the one that really has, is convincing completely for me, is, um, is this. Um, if the temple's destruction had been a past event for any of the writers of the New Testament, Right. Um, if if somehow John had been alive and was still writing, or um, you know, some people argue that that some of the Pauline letters, um, if, you know, if they weren't actually written by Paul but someone else were written later, perhaps. Um, if someone or some of the Gospels, right? Some people think the Gospels were written really late. Um, if the New Testament writers writing their record of Jesus, his life and ministry, and the work of the church afterwards, um, had, had been writing after 70 AD, then it seems incomprehensible, when the temple's destruction would have already taken place, it seems incomprehensible to me that they would not have recorded it, that they would not have written it down. 
and that there wouldn't be some record of what happened between 66 and 70. Um, you see this, of course, in the Old Testament, um, a, a detailed accounting of how the temple was destroyed and what led up to it and what the effects were um, when the Babylonian armies come and do that. Um, and the reason I say this is because this would be incomprehensible because it was such a cataclysmic event for the, the religious history of Israel and for, consequently, the religious history of Christianity, which came out of the Israelite religion, of course, right? Um, now, just on a broad scale, that's true. But secondly, that's true because the man at the center of this Christian religion, uh, about whom all of the New Testament writes, spoke not once but many times about that very event, right? That the temple would be destroyed, that judgment would come upon Israel within a generation. So if you are an apostle, if you were someone writing the New Testament, and you had this proof of verification of Jesus' prophecy, how could you not connect that dot? Does that make sense? If you're writing in 75 or something, how would you not, in your, in your epistle, as you're urging the church, say, and look, Jesus said that the temple would be destroyed, and lo, it was destroyed, and thus you should have faith and confidence that uh, Jesus was a true prophet, and you can trust his word, etc., etc., right? But you don't see the New Testament making that argument. You don't see um, writers um, of the New Testament arguing that, uh, or even mentioning in any way, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment coming upon the leaders of Israel as a past event. You see plenty of, I think, predictions of it as a future event that people, the apostles are writing that they should have faith, they should be patient, right, as the apostle James says, and wait. Judgment is at hand, right? It's coming. It's almost here. Just wait. Hold on. But you, what you don't see the apostles saying is, well, judgment has happened. It's taken place. Be confident because um, Jesus was faithful to his word and kept his promises. Does that make sense? Just as a, I'm not asking you to agree with it, but just the logic of it. Um, I think that's a really practical reason to believe that the entirety of the New Testament canon was completed before 70 AD. Um, the second reason I think this is because I think there's a redemptive historical sense in which the canon had to be completed um, because I see the canon um, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the, the second witness against Israel. This is more of a biblical theological argument, but basically it goes like this. Um, in the Old Testament, um, in order for a, 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 a crime to be judged and someone to be convicted, um, it was not sufficient to have one witness, you had to have two, right? And so if, if we think about the first century as a time in which Israel is being held account for her sins and is going to receive judgment, she requires two witnesses, so to speak. The first witness, of course, is the Lord Jesus. Um, we see that again and again as he calls Israel to account. And then for 40 years, there's a second witness, which is the Spirit the Spirit working through the preaching of the apostles, but also the Spirit inspiring the canon and giving it um, as a public document stating about the judgment that is to come against Israel, that Jesus is the Messiah, that if you, if you don't repent and put your faith in him, judgment will come. I think this is, as I explained earlier in our sermon series in Mark, this is what that, that where Jesus talks about the sin against the Holy Spirit, this, that's what it's about. The sin against the Holy Spirit isn't something you're going to fall into accidentally. 
um, and never be forgiven of. The, the sin against the Holy Spirit is the sin that Israel is going to commit, which is a failure to listen to that second witness, a failure to repent. Now, I'm speaking generally here. There would be some, of course, who would repent. But generally speaking, a failure to, to listen and repent, and thus um, uh, there is no forgiveness, that there is destruction, there is judgment that comes um, when that second witness is rejected um, of the Holy Spirit. Um, the second sort of fundamental assumption of the preterist approach is that um, since Jesus is frequently prophesied, since Jesus frequently prophesied regarding the judgment of Israel and the destruction of the temple, his apostles um, would have anticipated the fulfillment of their prophecies in their own lifetime. And I should say that's because Jesus spoke as if they would take place in his lifetime, or in their lifetime, rather. The prophecies of judgment against Israel are extremely prominent in the Gospels. They start with John the Baptist. They continue in the ministry of Jesus. And these prophecies were often time-specific. That's really key here. Jesus often included a time reference to the fulfillment of these prophecies that he made about judgment against Israel. Thus, the writers in the New Testament epistles anticipated that these prophecies would be fulfilled in their own lifetime. Now, let me just walk you through a few examples of this in the Gospels. I think it's really helpful to see this. Uh, we see this first, the imminent judgment of Israel um, in the ministry of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist in Mark, Matthew 3, uh, when he sees many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he goes down and he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now, and he talks about talking about the one who's coming after him, the Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will gather his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's this expectation from John that judgment is imminent. It is almost here. It is not thousands of years in the future, right? Millennia in the future. It is, it is coming. It is almost here. Um, that urgency is taken up in the teaching of Jesus. Um, we saw this last Sunday in our gospel reading that Patrick read for us um, in Matthew 23. Um, Jesus, in Matthew 23, towards the end of his ministry, um, pronounces woes against the Pharisees um, and the scribes. Um, he pronounces predictions of judgment against them. And it's really important to see um, that he does so with a time reference in place. Okay, in, in Matthew 23, uh, 34 to 36, um, um, he's talking about, um, I'll start in 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets, right? Those guys in the Old Testament with Jeremiah and, and, and Elijah and others, they opposed the prophets, but we wouldn't have done that. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? See how Jesus is, is invoking even that language of John the Baptist, right? Calling them vipers. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. 
And it's interesting, Jesus says, I send you. When would he send these prophets and wise men and scribes? Well, he would do that, of course, in the Great Commission, right? He would do that after his resurrection when he sends out the apostles to preach the gospel. But here's how he says these leaders of Israel will respond. Some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that that is precisely the way in which the leaders of Israel responded to the wise men and the scribes and the prophets that Jesus would send to them, right? They would kill them and crucify them and flog them in the synagogues and persecute them from town to town. You see this all over the book of Acts. It's, sometimes there's this misconception that the, the persecution that the church experienced early, and by early I mean the first decades of its life, was 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 carried out by the Roman Empire. That's simply not true. If you read the book of Acts and the, the record that's given there of the persecution the early church experiences, it is initiated again and again by the Jews, by Jewish leaders. Now, sometimes, yes, they're stirring up Romans to participate in that um, persecution, but always the initiative is coming um, from the Jewish leaders, from the leaders of Israel who are seeking um, to put... Um, uh, those men whom Jesus sent to death. But Jesus says this will happen so that on you, and that it's really important, he's, he's looking at these men when he's talking, right? On you, on you men, may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel, which is going back really far, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Right? He's saying, in your rejection of me, in your rejection of the prophets whom I will send to you, the apostles, you will make yourself culpable for all the wickedness of humanity in some sense. This will come upon you. Their blood will be required. And then he says in verse 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This generation. And for me, that's a clenching text, right? that if Jesus is saying this generation, there's no re reason to read that as anything other than an actual reference to this generation. And part of that is because you see the way in which the Lord speaks of generations, right? The Lord, um, after the Exodus, brings the people up to the promised land. They rebel against his word. And what does he prophesy? He says, this generation will never enter the promised land. They will die. And when he said this generation, he didn't just mean people who are like this generation in their hearts somehow. No, he actually meant that generation. And the book of um, Numbers tells us how that worked out, right? That that generation actually died. Those literal people actually died in the wilderness. And then when their children were grown up, they went in with the exception of uh, Joshua and Caleb um, who were protected from that judgment. And, and so I think there's no reason, there's no way to read this except Jesus prophesying specific judgment against this particular generation. Um, we also see this kind of argument taken or made in the parable that I preached on last Sunday, uh, the parable of the wicked tenants, right? We see this in Matthew 21 or in Mark 12. Um, when Jesus talks about their wickedness, um, he says that, uh, you know, when they kill the beloved son, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Um, and, and Matthew, they answer the question, um, they, the leaders of Israel, said, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits 
in their seasons. And Jesus says, yes. Haven't you read in the scriptures? The stone the building rejected have become the cornerstone. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, you people in front of me, and given to a people producing its fruits, which to me speaks of what is going to take place in 70 AD. You people, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who are producing its fruits, which are those who are united to the fruitful one, right, to the vine, um, the one uh, Jesus who will endure even their persecution because it will not stop him. He will die, but then be raised again. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier uh, in Mark, um, this is in Matthew and Luke as well, this Olivet Discourse. The disciples are looking at the temple and saying how wonderful it is. Jesus, um, in Mark 13, verse 2, he says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And um, the disciples say, Tell us, then, when will these things be? And what will the sign be when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus goes on. He talks about all the things I mentioned earlier. Rumors of war, um, false messiahs. Uh, persecution, abomination of desolation, um, alas for those who are pregnant or nursing in those days, right? Or uh, pray that it won't happen in the winter or on a Sabbath. There'll be a great tribulation, all these kinds of things. And then um, in verse 30, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, until this judgment that I'm predicting takes place. Um, And so I think it's just really important to see that, to see, and we can look at many other places in the Gospels where Jesus prophesies judgment to come um, with a particular focus. Yes, generally Jesus believed that judgment would come, right? We see this in John 5, that judgment will come on the last day, um, that all men will be judged by him because he has been given that authority by the Father. But in particular, he is pronouncing judgment against apostate Israel, against Israel, which has become in many ways a stand-in for the human race and its wickedness and rebellion against God um, outside of the work of the Spirit and the renewing grace that God gives. Um, and, and so he predicts this judgment to come against these people. Any questions about that? All right, I'm going to talk for a few minutes. We have just a few minutes here. What really happened in Jerusalem between 66 and 70 AD? I think it's really important for us to grapple with this if we're going to understand this context rightly. So at the close of the Old Testament period, Israel is under the rule of the Persian Empire, right? Cyrus defeats Nebuchadnezzar, or not Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, um, and the, the Persians and the Medes take over. Um, This continues for some time. Then the Persian Empire is conquered by Alexander. It becomes Greek. Um, Persecution begins to happen in the second century BC um, of Israel. Uh, They begin to be Hellenized forcibly. Um, Sabbath practices are are prohibited, circumcision. Um, Fundamental sort of religious practices are taken away. Um, At that time, uh, that's when you... You hear about the Maccabees, right? The Maccabean Revolution, um, rebellion, um, rather, uh, the the festival of Hanukkah um, that is 
celebrated culturally by Jews today and religiously by some. Um, that's what that refers to, right? The, the miraculous intervention of God to protect Israel against her persecutors. And we should say that, that I mean, that's all historical. You can, you, know, you can find historical documents. And it really was a miraculous intervention by God that happened with the Maccabeans to protect the people of God at that time. Um, this then led to a period of freedom for Israel. And this is really important for the context of the Old Testament, or the New Testament, rather that Israel did have about 100 years of relative political freedom um, where she was independent um, and had a taste of that. Um, there was never a Davidic king reinstalled. Those kinds of things didn't happen, but there was real freedom in the not distant past for Israelites in the first century. But then in 62 BC or so, the Roman Empire came and, and colonized Israel and made Palestine a, a colony and ruled over them politically. Now, the Romans still did give a lot of freedom to Israel in terms of worship, and you see that, of course, in the New Testament, um, the temples operating and all those things were taking place. Um, but that was the world into which Jesus walked, a world where Israel had had political freedom recently, but now was subjugated to um, a foreign empire, to Gentiles. And this led to zealotry, right? Zealotry was all over the place in the first century. There was this desire to throw off the shackles of Rome and to be free, right? One of Jesus' apostles is called Simon the Zealot because apparently he had sympathies with that perspective, at least before he became an apostle. Um, so zealotry is all over the place, uh, which basically means armed rebellion against Rome. And you see this. Um, there are many messiahs or men who claim to be messiahs in the first century. And most of them, with the exception of Jesus, are claiming to be so in a, in a radical, violent way, saying, I'm the Messiah, so let's get some men together and attack the Romans because, you know, we know what happened with the Maccabeans not so long ago. Um, God will intervene. He will protect us. And he's divinely sanctioned my war against Rome. Um, this this um, was always in the background of what was happening in those years. And it, and it reached a culmination in the mid-60s when uh, the Roman proconsul, sort of the successor to Pontius Pilate, a man named Gessius Florus, um, was a fool, it seems, as a political leader, and, and plundered the temple, did something very provocative, um, you know, took vessels from the temple and sold them and used them for um, Roman interests, which set Israel off, made them very, very angry. Right, and, and started basically an armed insurrection on a widespread level in Palestine, um, which was initially successful. Um, some legions came in uh, from Syria, and you can read about this, right? Josephus writes about it. Other historians write about these events. Um, Syria, legions come in from Syria, and they're defeated. Um, Israel has a great victory at about 66 AD. And uh, she experiences then for about three years political freedom. Um, you can find archaeologists have found coins from this period that, that bear the inscription um, uh, year three, right? Year one, year two, year three. And on the other side, it says Jerusalem the Holy, right? So there's a sense in which they're, they're setting up this new kingdom and there's this expectation that um, they're something, God is doing something new, right? They've defeated the Romans. Um, they're going to win. Um, he's going to give them uh, a, a new sort of existence as a people. Um, but then what happens around 69 is 
the legions really come. Six legions now come, um, from, or four legions rather, come, um, it, it intentionally sent by the, by the Caesar in Rome. Um, they're led initially by Vesis, Vespasian, um, who then goes back and becomes Caesar himself um, after, the, after the current Caesar dies. He leaves his son Titus to carry out the military movement. They systematically take back Israel, um, the outlying villages first, right, the rural areas, and then they increasingly move in toward Jerusalem. Then they besiege Jerusalem. And, and even now, you can imagine the people of Israel are saying, well, uh, Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem, right? If you read the Old Testament, right, the leader of the Assyrians, and God intervened, and he delivered Jerusalem. So who cares that Titus is out there with these thousands and thousands of Roman soldiers? Uh, God will, will surely act. Um, but six months go by, and there's a siege, and there's starvation, and there's some really horrific records. We don't exactly know if they're all true or not, but, you know, cannibalism that was taking place in Jerusalem, you know, people doing everything they could to stay alive, people dying by the thousands, people trying to escape from the city and being slaughtered by the Roman legions as they went. Um, uh, you know, Josephus talks about valleys being full of corpses, um, all these, I mean, just, I mean, you can imagine, right? The ancient world, six-month siege, it's going to get bad in that city um, real fast. And then finally, they push through, right? The Roman legions push through. Um, they slaughter the remaining men who are able to fight. Um, they rape and pillage and do all sorts of terrible things. And they burn the temple. And they carry off its precious vessels and they take them to Rome. And they enslave whoever didn't die. And they take them to Rome. And many of those Jews end up building uh, Roman artifacts like the Colosseum and other things. You can still see in Rome today an, an arch which depicts Titus's triumph over Jerusalem. He's carrying off one of the lampstands um, out of the temple, right? You may have seen this uh, on the pictures of this. Um, it's impossible, I think, for us to fully grasp how cataclysmic this event was, not just on a human scale, right? Josephus estimates that over a million Jews died during those years, um, but on a religious scale. Think about this for a moment, right? Since the establishment of Israel after the Exodus and time of Moses, the building of the tabernacle, the temple or the tabernacle has always been in existence. Sacrifices have always been made. Um, now that stops for about 40 years or so 50 years or so during the Babylonian exile, but it starts up again. For, you know, over a thousand years, this has been the way that the people of God have worshipped. And now that is totally wiped out. And this time there's no return from exile, right? There's no going back to Jerusalem. There's no reestablishment of the temple. Um, there's no, um, yeah, there's no reinitiation of Israel's religious life that happens. And I think it's really important for us to grapple with that, the, the, the massiveness of that and what, how important that would have been for the people of God um, at that time, to have the Christians to have witnessed that, to have seen, oh, all those things that Jesus said, all that judgment that he prophesied, he really did it. God really did it. He really judged his people. Something new is really here. Something new has really been established in Jesus that is apart from the temple, that is apart from the sacrifices of animals. 
And, and really, preterism is an attempt to try to take that seriously, how significant that event would have been, not just historically, but also in terms of redemptive history. So we'll talk about that more um, in the next couple of weeks, but that just sort of gives you an overview of, of the argument. Okay, let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful for the way that you work in history. We're thankful for your care for us. Um, we pray that you would bless us now, even as we prepare for worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.